Hello, and welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Goodman, your host. This podcast is dedicated to the aspiring writer and artist and will provide inspiration and tips from top professionals in the field. If you've been listening to this podcast or are new to it, I thank you very much. I would also appreciate if you took a moment to follow it on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. I'm currently at Superstars Writing Conference in Colorado Springs and having a time of my life being able to speak to so many creative people. I've got a guest who I've known several years now from DragonCon is when we when I first met you, I think. Well, no, we actually first met here last year at Superstars. Seems like I've known you forever. Well, well, well now, now, see, back and forth doing uh, the the interviews and things like that over the course of the pandemic. Um, you know, I jumped in on with Emily doing some interviews to start with. That's where so we, we first met. Yeah, yeah, yeah it, okay, it's yeah. been a couple of years. It really has. But we physically met for the first time here. And that's Last when I got, I got to meet you. I got to meet Joni. Then I got to meet, uh, what was it? Uh, Julie and Emily at DragonCon this past year. But no, over the, the, the course of the last couple of years during the pandemic, you know, doing these interviews, doing, doing the workshop at Writers of the Future. Okay, good. You've redeemed me. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I'm here at Superstars. I've, I'm, I'm so happy that um, I've been able to catch up here. So who you've just been listening to right now is William Joseph Roberts, a.k.a. Hillbelly. He's... Um, an award-winning author for the JTF Legends. He's also an editor and publisher of Three Ravens Publishing. And he also brought along with him, who I just met, Ben Tyler Smith, who is also a published author and is one of the co-publishers of Three Ravens Publishing. There's three of them. The third one is not here, but so I've got two of the Ravens with us. So welcome, Hillbilly and Ben. Thank Pleasure you for having me here. All right, so I guess to begin with, we're connected initially through Writers of the Future with mm-hmm. your having um, been entering. So starting with you then, uh, Hillbilly, how long have you been entering Writers of the Future? Uh, the last five years. Uh, that, that's really, I really got into the writing community and learning what was available out here in, in 2017. And from there, it's just grown. I, I started to learn about this, other anthologies, things like that, and I started submitting. Um, and I just keep submitting because I, I see value in what writers of the future is, you know, it has value versus a popularity contest that some of these other awards are, are driven on. Good, good. Well, that helps. And you've, you've won multiple silver honorable mentions. I've got, I've got, uh, honorable mentions, silver honorable mentions, and I just haven't found that niche to get me over that edge yet. (laughs) And, and like I said, um, I was on one of Dave Farland's Apex meetings, and I, I asked him, you know, I keep getting these. Why ain't I winning? And his answer was just simple. It was a good story. If you're getting a silver honorable mention, it's a good publishable story, but it's not publishable in this anthology. And to me, that flipped that switch. It gave me that little light bulb moment of it's a right-to-market issue. So you've got to learn the market you're trying to write to. And, and the stories I was submitting, they had some darker elements. They had you know, d- issues dealing with drug addiction, PTSDs, suicidal thoughts, things like that with these characters and the, the path that they're going through and the redemption cycle that they're going through. And it just it doesn't work for this anthology, even right. though I'm getting that. Okay, cool. I can go and publish it someplace else, and it's going to be – it should be decent. But, uh, yeah. So this is the market that you're trying to hone in on. 
because I see value in what this contest is. Good, good. And Ben, yourself? Let's see. For me, it's probably been since about 2008 I've been submitting to Writers of the Future. Now, there were some dry spells in between then, but in 2008, I was working a job in Manhattan and uh, had a lot of free time riding the subway, riding the ferries. And before that, I would read, I would play video games, and then one day I just said, I need to write something. So I started writing science fiction, fantasy, whatever came to me. And, um, geez, back in those days, I, I had, like, you actually had to buy physical books of markets to submit to. Mm-hmm. I came across Writers of the Future and said, oh, you know, they're looking for, they're looking for, for short stories, fantasy, science fiction, up to 17,000 words. I can do that. And, uh, well, like Hillbilly was saying, I wasn't even really thinking about what exactly you wanted, you know, mm-hmm. fr- from the, from the story. I just thought, oh, you just want a fantasy story. I just wrote one. It's, it's, it's 17,000 words. I'll throw it in. Not even thinking it was probably a bloated mess <laughs> and, and could have been cut down by half. And, um, as you would expect, getting form rejections here and there, not just with y'all, but with other publications, then a dry spell hit with the market crash and trying to focus on work and day-to-day stuff. And then 2014 comes along, and that's when I decide I need to get better at craft. And I started buying books on writing, started studying more. Dave Farland's book on, um, on Million Dollar Outlines was mm-hmm. one of those. Right. After I started applying some of the techniques I learned, I started resubmitting to y'all and to other markets. That's when I started getting still rejections, but either rejections with feedback or in the case of this contest, it would be honorable mentions here, there. And then finally, I think it was two or three years ago, you twisted my arm, Hillbilly, and had me send in a story. Then I was like, I don't know that it'll do it. Silver honorable mention. And I, I was like, what does that even mean? And I looked it up and it was like, that means it got set aside and did not make the final cut to semifinalist, but it was almost there. Right. That sent a chill down my spine when <laughs> so, I got that. that and that I realized even, just reading that didn't even click with me originally. It was when, when I talked to Dave mm-hmm. and and he just what he said, it clicked versus reading those words of what it means to get a silver honorable. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it just it's a different thing. Well, and and I um like I don't post a lot on on the message board uh-huh. that we have. I tend to be a bit of a lurker, but after I got that silver mention, I'm like silver, what does it even mean? I get on the forum and I start trolling. And I forget if it was Wolf Moon or if it was someone else had a post explaining what those meant. And I was like, "What? oh, dude, that's awesome. <laughs> I think Wolf does have a post up there. Yes. Yeah. Okay, great. So now you've both do not sound like you're from New York. So <laughs> even though you work there. So tell me about like Three Ravens Publishing. It's located and how you fit right in there with the ethnic and the whole deal. Um, okay. Well, it's located in what well, home base Raven Central is Chickamauga, Georgia. Uh, that's where I'm based out of now after getting out of the military and traveling the world and everything. It started off with a place for myself, Ben, and RJ Layden, who's our other partner, to publish our labors of love that we didn't want to give away to someone else. Right. I mean, you put all this work into it and you just don't want to have somebody else rip it apart or not pay you hardly anything for it. And along the way, we started opening the doors to help other authors to take that step up and, and realize their dream. It's been learning and growing the whole way and stumbling on our face. I mean, some of the earlier pieces, they they could use another edit run because my editing eyes are different than they were three years ago. Sure. But we're I think we're up to 60 titles now total published. 
with including the anthologies. Um, it's become a thing to become a raven, which if you publish a novel to us, you get to become a raven, an official. And I got to get swag for all that and, and set that to make it solid, you know. But it, it's... Oh, I want to put in my, toss my coin in the hat there for when you do get that to become an honorary raven then. Or something like that, or whatever level you've got b- below. Well, the honorary, I mean, getting into an anthology. And we've got a whole lo- bunch of open calls. Just, I like a lot of different genres. I mean, I, I'm not solid on anything. I read almost anything there is out there that I can get a hold of. Or, well, listen to. Audiobooks are my big thing. I want a good adventure story. Take me on an adventure. Tell me a good story. Suck me into it. And let me go right there with the characters. And that's always been what I loved about reading. If you get to be right there, shoulder to shoulder with those characters on that adventure, doing what they're doing, and then you have to come back to the mundane world and you cry and scream until you can go back, you know? Yeah. And that 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 transformation that you can go to. And that's the kind of stories I want. I don't want message fiction. I don't want anything profound. I mean, if it's a damn good adventure, okay, cool. But that's not what I've been looking for. When it, when it comes down to when I'm reviewing the submissions. Yeah. How do you split up the reviews? So, like, you're both co-publishers, so what's your job within? How do, do you distinguish each person? You're, I specialize in this, and I do this, and then she does the other? Or how's that work, Ben? We're in the middle of, of trying to shake things up a little bit so we know exactly what each of us is best at and what each of us can do. Like Hillbilly is is the face of the company. There's no denying that. He is he is what you're talking about. <laughs> it's <laughs> all lies. As you can tell, he's a bit of a show stealer. Yeah. And 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 yeah. while you know, while he's he's very good at editing, he's even better at being getting out there and getting getting the readers fired up, getting the writers fired up, finding new talent, um, you know, meeting with people such as with you, John. Right. And um, you know, my talent lies with on on the editing side, and I'm trying to get more and more into that. I know R.J. Layden; she wants to get more into that as well, and um, that's what our focus is going to be going forward. As you said, sort of specializing who does what. As it is, we all kind of do a little bit of everything at the moment, trying right. to, and we're just trying to get things rolling, trying to get things moving, you know, in the right direction. And we are definitely going in the right direction. It's been, yeah, it's been an adventure since. Well, you and I met Hillbilly. <laughs> it, was in, it was in 2017, right? 2017, it, it, my, my very first convention ever, the uh, Liberty Con, which was the last year at the Chattanooga Choo Choo. And um, that convention, well, we both attended the same writing workshop by Charity Ayers. And we got to sit down and write for 15 minutes, write a scene. And I brain puked this scene out. And then she was like, okay, go ahead and read them. So I did, and I kind of scared her because I'm loud and obnoxious and all that kind of stuff. But she just had that holy crap look on her face, and it's like that was good. And and for whatever reason, it doesn't matter about how many times my wife told me my stuff was good. Any of my friends, you know, in the back of my head, they were mom answers. They didn't count. This total stranger just did that. You know, a physical reaction along with the verbal reaction, and it's just that flipped that switch. I got my validation. I can do this. And well, you know that that's the crazy tangent that sent things spiraling into where we're at now. And um, I've taken Ben and and uh, Rachel on this run through the muck as I've dragged them along <laughs> behind me. And, and that's the running joke. I'm I'm usually dragging everybody right behind me. I was like, let's go. We're gonna have fun. <laughs> 
And we usually do have fun. We do get dragged through the mud, but it's fun. <laughs> it, it's at least fun mud. Yeah, yeah. So now on your, you say you, you're very eclectic in what, what you like to read, but what about what you like to publish? It seems more and more our focus is, is trending more towards fantasy. Yeah. And, and that can be anything from like traditional epic or high fantasy all the way to like Robert Howard's sword and sorcery style fantasy to even weird like, Weird West. Like, like Weird West or, or Lovecraftian <laughs> fantasy with, with deep horror themes, but not necessarily horror specific. Yeah, we're, we're definitely a fantasy print. Um, you know, and we've got, we've got some comedy. We've got some sci-fi. You know, we've got a few other things mixed in there, mm-hmm. and that's been part of the growth pattern. Uh, my writing group, The Corner Scribblers, I published those through there too. So the, there are these little flash fiction collections helping baby authors. We're all working together on the editing to grow as a as a team, you know. Right. And um, so it's it's been eclectic on that, but we're really honing it in. And fantasy last year was really we we were looking at the table, and uh, somebody brought it up. It's like you really don't know what you are. You you got a little bit of everything here, and it's like yeah. But then I, when I started really looking at what we were publishing, what was in the queue coming up, it was epic fantasy, it was dark fantasy, it was urban fantasy. We got our mill fantasy series, the JTF-13. Mixed military units dealing with supernatural threats on the battlefield. You know, it's still fantasy. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we're, we're really turning into a fantasy print. That's good. So you said you've got like 60 titles? Yeah. And is it are these all novels, or do you do also compilations? There, there's you do novels, anthologies? there's anthologies, there's the, the well, the small corner scribblers anthology collections. I mean, they're they're just little old, little tiny things, um, but a, a mixture. We've got uh, what two, three collections of short stories um, that are you know written by the same author in that same world and, and storyline, right, right. but just short stories or or novellas sure. stacked up. And some of the marketing on that kind of stuff that that we're learning as we're going, you know, looking at read through and things like that is starting to narrow our focus of what we're accepting now. You know, having a plan for a trilogy or, you know, a series of books. That way we get the read through because that's where you get more money on the, the back end versus a standalone, which a lot of readers will see, oh, it's just one book. Yeah, we'll wait. Yeah. And they won't even touch mm-hmm. it. I mean, but, I'm I'm guilty of that, you know. Yeah. Growing up, I would read. Well, uh, Raymond Feist was my gateway drug into in, into the world of of reading like epic fantasy and writing. And um, you know, his Midkemia universe at the time was maybe like twelve books. Now he's ended it now, but it was closer to twenty. And that's my mindset. I love the long epic tales, and it, it can be split up over you know multiple trilogies, where maybe or generational. Or it can just be one sprawling epic like uh, like Robert Jordan's Wheel of Time. Mm-hmm. That's what. Or like Elwin Hubbard's Mission Earth. Exactly, you yeah. exactly. You know, it, it, like that. That's what I like. That's what I grew up getting sucked into. It's not that I have an issue with standalone novels. It's just that never really. There's more meat sang on the bone. To me. Yeah. There's more meat on the bone that you can bite into and just go with it. Well, and and if it's a world I love enough to want to be lost into it for four, five, eight hundred pages then why can't I be stuck in it for another 800 pages and another 800 pages and another 800 pages? So, you know, I don't want to leave certain worlds. Right. I love them. Now, I mean, I've done well over 200 interviews, most of them with authors, and I know that there's a, you got different audiences out there. Mm-hmm. You got the ones that like 
you know, they, they want to have a not just a three course meal, they want a 10 course meal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and you got the others that are shy of reading. And I've talked to people that, like on reading Battlefield Earth, that's 425,000 words. You know, that's what you're talking about, one of those meaty books. Yeah. But it, it's, it's a single volume. It's, a, it's one story. It's a long story. It's epic, you know, and it's, some can argue that it's two books put into one, you know, because you have your first point where the planet is destroyed, the evil planet, and then you go on there for the next thing where it, go, where it starts spanning the, the universe. But some people, get, when they see a book like that, they're totally intimidated. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, and so some of these guys, you need your little flash fiction to start them like, wow, this is kind of fun stuff. And they grow into becoming a you. Well, well you know, I have, I'm slow as a reader. I, I've got a little bit of uh, dyslexia and I have to reread lines just to comprehend it because of the ADHD. Uh, um, the big books I've learned don't do as bad on the mem- or the, the retaining of what's in the story when... I get sucked into it. You know, if it's something that's like, oh, okay, him, ha, and oh, yeah, it's okay, and oh, wait, here's another chapter. You know, there's some books that I'll just skip over stuff and don't remember the last chapter because it just did not hook me. Right. So, you know, things like anything Howard. I love the Conan universe. Sure. It's just that sword and sorcery, go out there, kill the big bad monster, get the, get the lady and and go get a beer you know yeah those are like what 60,000 50,000 like, some of them not even that i mean yeah, the, the early 40, collections you know well i mean they were short stories to start with yeah well five novels monthly those are 40,000 word, yeah. words per and those were called novels back in the yep. 30s 40s and, and well it's the same thing L. Ron hubbard was doing he was submitting to these same magazines that mm-hmm. that lovecraft and and howard and, and all of them were submitting to and you know the way that they described the worlds and and dragged you into them, it was beautiful. Mm-hmm. You know, we've got different hooks nowadays. The, the the their method, I think, was more flowery, maybe well, not flowery, more descriptive enough that it lets you imagine exactly where you're at. We we cut a lot of words nowadays. You know, back then they were putting extra bits in there just to make word count because every word counted as a penny. So, you know, they're trying to up well, some that of them, Some of them was, some of them was like a tenth of a penny. Some right, of them, right. Some to get. So, you but, know, one thing that, but one thing that I know at least specific, because I'm very familiar with, with Hubbard's works, um, intimately connected with that, is that he took it from being just machine, like especially with science fiction, and so, but he focused on humanity, on people. He brought people into science fiction and fantasy, which is why Street and Smith hired him to uh, work under John Campbell and told John Campbell, publish whatever he sends you because he was known as an adventure writer and he brought that into science fiction which up to that point had been you know the ray guns and the spaceships and and more technology oriented and there weren't really a lot of people in it that was specifically why he brought him and a few other adventure writers into that what became known as the golden age of science fiction mm-hmm. and, and what um the um manuscript factory um re- reading through this collection yes. here, which I don't remember what the, the the okay writer, the shaping of popular fiction, all about L. Ron Hubbard, the the manuscript factory in here. It talks about how he was actually looking at his numbers. Yeah, that was that was impressive. He's sitting there, you know, he wrote this many words, he made this much money, and he's sitting there figuring what his ratio is. It's like, well, okay, my my westerns aren't selling for craps, but science fiction is writing, so let's go over here. 
Well, now it's shifted the next month. Well, now I need to go ride a Western because that's where the money's at. And it's, it's, it's interesting to see that side of things at that point because you have to just do the raw calculations. You can't just look it up on Amazon you know, yeah. back then. And that was beautiful, how he was trying to go about finding that. And it, but it's a right-to-market issue. That's right. It's exactly what that was. Exactly. He was trying to find the, what the market wanted. And that was at a time, too, he was writing 100,000 words a month. He wrote three hours a day, three days a week. And that was his writing time to put to do that kind of, of work. He was incredibly prolific. And we were talking earlier about Dean Wesley Smith, yeah, you know, yeah. how he could write and submit. That's what Mr. Hubbard was doing. He would write and he'd submit. And he was selling well over 90% of his works first draft for submission. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've heard it argued various ways about, you know, Pulp Fiction, which was, it was the same thing back then, too, as Pulp is, isn't the Slicks. Mm-hmm. But it was a lot more popular than the Slicks because this was the people's writing. This is what people wanted. This was also the time period right after World War I, after the Depression, after the Spanish flu, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, half of America was out of work. So they wanted the escapist. It was referred to as escapist fiction. Yep. And they wanted something to take them someplace else. And you're talking about at the beginning of our interview, how you like something to just take you someplace and you wanted someplace that you could just go sink your teeth into it and go back and come back for another 60,000, 100,000 pages. That's what that was about. Mm-hmm. You know, to do that just for a little bit, go elsewhere. And like I said, that at that point, a novel was... Leo Tolstoy hadn't made it into America yet. So a novel was still 40,000 words. <laughs> Which that, that part in itself is funny to me, how, how that's developed. A lot of people look at 40,000 words now, it's like, that's not a novel. Yeah, it's a small novel. It's a short novel. Yeah. Or uh, I, think the, you know, I think what they call it now is, is a novella. Well, yeah, yeah. It, it can be up to about 40,000 well, words. It the, and it's seven, up to 17,000 words for a n- novel. No, 12,000 for a novelette. Seven, seven to twelve, yeah, for novelette, yeah, something like that. But up to forty is a novella, a novella. and then after that, it becomes novel. And then I think an epic is like a hundred and sixty or something like that is what that gets classified as. Yeah, I think so. But what, what I find interesting is that so so back back in in Hubbard's time and Howard's time, you know, people loved reading those those forty thousand word novels. And now, yes, there are people. I mean, like me, who love the sprawling epics. A, a, novellas are a growing market again. That's so right. Shorter novels are a growing market, especially on the indie scene. But I, I assume maybe even on the traditional side too that we're getting more into that. And I, it's just fascinating how the more things change, the more they stay the same. You know, people's interests do vary here and there, but we still love that short, quick read. Well, that, that okay. That also goes back to where society is right now. Um, you know, those big, thick books. Yeah, yeah. they're ominous. I don't want to sit down and try to read a 20-page chapter because I'm a slow reader. But if it's a five-page chapter or something like that, cool, I can knock out one chapter, go to bed, and I'm good. Yeah. Or I take a take a half-hour lunch break from the day job, read five, ten pages, and I'm done. And that's good. But these, these smaller pieces of stories, you know, the smaller novels or the novelettes, they are easier to bite off the chunks of. So some people, you know, just because of a life— the, the streaming services like Netflix and things like that, that to me is beautiful because nobody has time for a regularly scheduled program. Yeah. Same kind of thing. You get this small story, even if it's a, an anthology. Anthology is actually coming back and becoming something. That's right. Because people want to read one little story at a time. Mm-hmm. They don't have to commit to an entire book. It's just a story. 
Well, yeah, if, if you're listening to an audiobook, you know, for instance, like an audio anthology, a short story is potentially your commute to work. Yeah. Or your commute to the grocery store and back. Yeah, maybe a max of an hour, depending on what the length of the stories were. Yeah, and it, it's just a great way to get a full story in a small package. And then you have, after you've listened to one or read one, you then have 10 or 12 more to get through. And it's, yeah, I love that as well. I mean, I mean, I know I said I love the sprawling <laughs> epics, but I do love short stories as well. I mean, I, I write... I've written several of them. It's a great yeah. way to learn the craft, <laughs> and it and it and it it's it's a great way to just get sucked into a story. It's also a way to meet an author. Yes, yes. You know, you can be like, "Well, I love how they did that right there." And frequently with writers, the future winners, they'll take their winning story. Or I had one recent guest who, Ron Collins, who took his twenty-four hour story that he wrote at Rise of the Future, turned that into an, a nine-volume series, which is his main you know, what he's known for out there. But it gives somebody a taste like, wow, that was really good. Give me more of that. You know, at least... You, you uh, get that little yeah. taste test. It's yeah. just like going to the grocery store and they got the samples like, ooh, what's this? Let me try that. Oh, I love that. And you just go for more. Yeah, Elise Stevens. Um, she was published a few years ago. And I loved her short story. And I said, where's the, where's the novel? Where's the novel? <laughs> and it's coming. And every time I see her, where's your novel? Where's your novel? I want you on my podcast. Once soon as you get there, I love your characters. When do I get it? Yep. You know, so it's just one of those things that I was so attracted to that I really wanted to find out more. So it is a great way to, to introduce somebody to an author and then take it from there. Yeah. It's been surreal coming to this conference that this is my first time here at Superstars. Yeah. Um, and it's been surreal walking around, introducing myself to people and finding some of the people here that are either, you know, alumni or even some of the bigger named writers have read some of my short stories, you know, that, that have been in some of these different anthologies. Like I've got several short stories in this particular fantasy universe that I've developed that I'm working on the novel for. And I'm, and yeah. people like Hillbilly are saying, where's the novel? Where's the novel? Wait, wait. Hey Ben, where's my novel? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's just, it's exciting and intimidating, but also ultimately just fascinating to find again people that are getting sucked into the short works that i'm writing to kind of build out the universe and just play with it to figure out what i want to do exactly with it and to find that they love it yeah it's amazing and finding the elements that touch them that 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 yes. to me is the most one of the most important parts anybody that has read my stuff getting that feedback of what was it that hooked you what was it that touched the heartstring what what connected to you as a person because for me, those emotional connections mean something. Yeah, so I, I I tend to write the um, the damaged character, I, the average Joe just trying to struggle. He's not a superhero. I hate superhero characters. They're they're too overdone. I like the average Joe struggling to make things happen, and winning by the skin of his teeth. I'll beat the crap out of my characters all the way through. I mean, I'll well kicking <laughs> and screaming through the mud, um, and. When they when somebody comes back and and tells me that I've touched a heartstring or I've touched an emotional point, or or a healing point, mm -hmm. you know, like with with Wildcat and Leander and and the whole struggle that he was going through, where he lost his family and just dealing with that as a PTSD in itself, and um, I had people come back it's like, what you wrote was just raw and gritty and thank you because you put it out there for what it is, and that that to me is important. Yeah. I don't know if you've listened or read anything by Jonathan Mayberry. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, similar type of a, of a thing there with his Joe Ledger series mm -hmm. um, where he's got somebody there who's just totally, he's, he's a real person. You know, he's seriously kick-ass, you know, but 
he's gone through his past and um, that's contributed to where he is right now. And he gets seriously messed up and all mm -hmm. kinds of things. But he's the thing that, that, which I really like also in storytelling too, is you're not trying like showing, here's my, here's my message out there, everybody. But your main character has got a sense of integrity. Yeah. You know, and that's something that Hubbard had too. And something that uh, Robert Heinlein said about Elwin Hubbard's fiction was that, yeah, I didn't know. I always thought there was a certain, just a, I think three different basic storylines um, in writing about people. But I learned there's another one from you, which is the man that learned better. Because a lot of his characters were conflicted, were on the wrong side of the law, but they came across some crossroads that they had to make a decision to do the right thing. And so his characters, you know, would do that. And I really like that in stories. And that's when we talked with Jonathan, you know, about his Joe Ledger and stuff. I said, I really get that your character didn't always do right up to point. But when, when it was important, he did made the decision, did the right thing. And said, yeah, that's what I try to come across. It's an important message to, to have. So on the type of books that you publish, even though you're not like trying, you don't want somebody to, like I said, to tell a, you know, super message heavy. Yeah. But is there any underlying philosophy that you appreciate more than others in books that you publish or you tend to publish? No. Not really, no. It's just it's just a good story. If it sucks me in, like we, we have one of our authors, Michael K. K. Fauciani. He submitted this fantasy or epic fantasy to us. And when I started reading it, I had a really hard time editing it because I got sucked in. Right, and I had to go back and reread because I forgot to edit as I was reading through, and it's a that's a good story. Yeah, exactly, and it's the kind of stuff that I want to read. Um, and if if you can hook me in like that, where I'm having trouble with editing, good. That's yeah. exactly what you want to do because for me to be able to do that, especially with my reading issues and the retention issues that I have, and I don't have that when I'm in that zone. Uh huh. That's beautiful. So uh, wherever we can find fiction like that, yes. Yeah. Well, one time, I, Algis Betters was the original coordinating judge for the contest, and he passed away some years ago. But he had this whole thing that he, when he'd send the stories back, he'd go along and he'd just, he'd pencil say, okay, this is where I left the story. Mm -hmm. Whatever happened that I was no longer in the story, and he'd just send it back saying, whatever happened here, I, I stopped reading the story right here. And so that's one thing that, he would do it as just as an editor, where did I leave the story? Where did it pop me out of it? You know, so something was wrong with the story around that point there that he'd get people to go and change, yeah. you know, and, and edit that thing. It, that That's one thing that I've tried to push for from the get-go with all the submissions that we get, whether it's an anthology or a novel, you know, without going too far into an edit, or review if it's just not catching us, giving some kind of comment of why. Because yeah. if we don't find out, we can't grow. Right. And I know the big boys, they don't do that. And that doesn't give us any feedback when we're trying to submit to them. And that's one thing that I wanted to change and give feedback. It takes a little extra time, but if we're reading through and, okay, well, it's just not biting, um, content is off and I'm not going to publish that, we can't do graphic sex, you know, whatever that is, to give that feedback, you know, research the market you're submitting to. Right. And that way they have a better idea of what they're they're flubbing up on and they can tweak it and adjust it and write to market, you know. But I struggled for so long to find 
any information of how to go about the business of writing or how to properly write. And that that's one reason why it's so I'm so passionate about passing the knowledge you know, yeah. and the anthologies. We're bringing in anchor authors, but we're also getting authors in for opening essays, for experience in the genre themselves, and for uh, words of wisdom to the up-and-coming authors writing in that. Pierce Anthony did one for Our Misfits of Magic. Larry Correa did one for the, the latest Trailer Park anthology. Just to pass on some knowledge in that genre for people that are trying to break in. Got it. Yes. So to, to go back just a little bit on what it is that we, you know, we as individuals and as publishers may be looking for in terms of theme or message, I would say, and feel free to disagree with me, Hillbilly, but I would say if there's one thing we're looking for in addition to a good adventure story with heroic characters in whatever form that heroism takes, we're looking for hope. Yeah. You know, you know, like so much, so much of fiction, particularly like on the grim dark side, a lot of it is nihilistic. A lot of it is, is it like the world is is t- totally irreparably broken. There's no hope, and to me, if that's the case, there's no point. You know, right. they're, they're like the heroes can can be can the world and the heroes, the situations can be as dark as they need to be to tell the story. But I think it's better to have a darkest before the dawn type of situation. The darkness should be there to contrast with the light that should hopefully be at the end of the story. Um, just to give a brief example of that, that short story uh, universe that I've got that I, I <laughs> promise will be a novel series at some point. It, it's, the, it's, it's a fantasy universe. It's uh, known as the Necrolopolis universe. And uh, Necrolopolis is a city of some 4 million undead of various types, you got skeletons, vampires, ghouls, Ashlings, Ashlings, all all just crammed together in this city, all basically waiting for their chance to meet with the god of death to resolve whatever issue has them bound to this mortal coil so that they can then cross over to the afterlife. And the main character is a necromancer who works directly with the city and it's his job to keep all of them in line. And and you know, it, it's it's a dark setting. Yeah, but at times it's very. At, at times I try to keep it lighthearted, like you know, the the main character he has a snarky attitude. He's mm-hmm. he's butting Dan heads Shambles. With all these, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, he's but he's butting heads with all of these different uh, with these different uh, factions, these different characters. Um, but ultimately, the story is about him using the power of darkness, the power of his black magic, to bring light into the world to help the different characters that are more broken than him who need who need a situation resolved, who need uh, someone to lift them up out of the muck and the mud that they're in. And um, again, it's dark. It, I mean, anytime you deal with the undead, it's going to be dark because how did they get that way? What, what has them bound to this plane? What, what unresolved issue do they need help with? And he's there. Sometimes he gets dragged kicking and screaming by his boss to go deal with it. Sound familiar? <laughs> he, um, he, uh, you know, he always rises to the occasion and will do the right thing, kind of like Joe Ledger does. Yeah. Well, now, now, okay, now something you got to toss out there: the inspiration for this world. What's your job title? Oh yes, yes. So my day job, I, I work for a, I work for a, uh, a company that may, that digitizes records and maps for cemeteries all over the country, and I have a lot of world building and brainstorming notes that have fed into this world. My uh, official designation, because I, I work on the mapping side of things, my official uh, definition or designation is um, mapping technician. No, I am an expert in necrocartography. 
I know where I know Whoa. I know where all the bodies are. <laughs> wow, I've never wouldn't oh. even considered such a, a job would even exist. Well, I was actually telling um, Jonathan Mayberry this last night. Um, we were at the mixer downstairs. Yeah. And uh, he was he was asking about my job, like what got me writing Necrolopolis, because he, he seemed intrigued by it. And my earliest brainstorming note. So when I started with the company, I was doing data entry, and um, each cemetery has has different information in their records. Some is just it's just the name of the decedent where they're buried. Others they go into cause of death, or they go into notes about like you know what they wanted to be buried with, if they had like a, a particular doll or sweater or something they wanted to be buried with. Well, this one note. It said in quotes, loved and cherished, close quote, casket. And I glanced at that, and I realized after the fact, it, 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 was, it was a type of casket that had, I guess, like loved and cherished stamped on the side or something or a brand. I glanced at that and was like, this woman loved and cherished her casket? And then it, in, instantly I was, I was uh, taken, to, taken to a cemetery with a character who was a groundskeeper saying, oh, yeah, yes, Mrs. Bradshaw, your, your coffin is really nice, but can you please get back in it so we can bury you again? Because, you know, I'm, I'm getting tired of having to refill this hole. And that was where Necrolopolis was born. <laughs> wow. That's fascinating. Oh, it's a beautiful series. And, and the snark, the, the snark of, of Adavel, who's the main character in it, is Pierce Anthony-ish. You know, mm-hmm. it's got that level, that that fun moving along without too much over-the-top comedy kind of thing. Yeah. Wow. Now, I know you've got an, an, an amazing military history. So a bit about that and how that led to your writing and what type of stuff you do write and how much that influences your writing. Oh, Lord. Um, okay, so I crewed F-15s in the Air Force for 10 years before I got booted on a medical. You know, most of what I read early on was a lot of fantasy. Mm-hmm. I started getting into science fiction on deployments because we'd have these little libraries, and whatever was there, you just grabbed it right. before it got away. I mean, I was reading Harlequins because that was all that was available. Um, and I, I've told Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman that the Dragonlance Chronicles, somebody dropped all three of them off in the library, and I snagged them. That got me through a deployment. I read those like four times. So taking taking... A lot of the stuff that we did, a lot of the places we went, you know, the environments, the the feel, the smells, things like that. I try to incorporate those kind of sensations into what I'm writing. It brings reality to it. Mm-hmm. It gives it a connecting point to the reader. You know, t- touching on those things that are important to somebody, the the PTSDs. That I've got so many brothers and sisters in the service that have issues worse than me, and I try to help them wherever I can. Sure. You know, I've always I've got that open door policy, you know. So seeing some of them breaking down on deployments because they're away from the family and things like that, and and that has influenced me. You know, the pain that we go through to do what we do for the loved ones that we have. Um. You know, the adventure of seeing something new for the first time. When I drove out here, a buddy of mine, he rode out to Wyoming on a motorcycle and then rode up to Sturgis couple years ago and he was telling me about his trip across kansas how it's like just fields and fields and fields and then you get get to colorado wyoming there's nothing and then all of a sudden there's this little blip on the on the horizon that starts getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger i was like okay cool that's a cool description him telling me that story had nothing on that drive out here we drove or i drove from georgia last year we drove again and 
Ben and, and Jenny, they, you know, we have a, a baby raven that's in training uh, that came with us. And they got to experience what I experienced that first time of driving, driving, driving. Oh, there's that blip. Oh, it's getting bigger. And, you know, there, there's the mountain range in Colorado Springs. You know, so that experience, the smell here is different from the East Coast. Sure. The smell in Kansas is different from here. Mm-hmm. You know, so taking those experiences and being able to now write those. And, you know, that can translate into science fiction. That can translate into a fantasy setting. Those little things can be important. And, and you don't have to go into a, a page-long ex, long exposition about it. Just one little blip. That's it. And it's all it takes to give you that little bit of description. And now you're rolling on. Yeah. You know? So th- those kind of things have been important with my travels around the world. That's actually how I came up with my pen name. It just kind of came to me while I was up on one of the jets. We, we would just put it back together. You know, it, it had broke and uh, I, don't, I think it was, I don't remember what it was. It might have been the ramps that we had to repair. But we had buttoned it up, got it put away for the night, and it just hit me. If Billy Joe Bob could do it, anybody can do it. Well, what's the proper name for Billy Joe Bob? William Joseph Roberts. And that's the reason I've kept the pen name. I mean, I'm at the point that everybody knows that it's not my real name, and most of everybody knows my real name. That's probably my fault because uh, I knew him under his real name, and I keep anytime we're anywhere, I usually end up calling him by that. Well, and I had a hard time at first deciding what I was going to go under, and I had a previous pen name before that that I just scrapped and started over because it was just didn't work because I wanted to come back to this one, right? And I keep it for the meaning. It's just just like my cut, you know. Everything on here has some sort of meaning. It's made from my oldest. Yeah, pair you're, of wearing a, you're wearing a you're wearing a vest. Yeah, it's okay. A, a motorcycle cut. So you know, most motor, motor no, motorcycle riders they they will ride a vest of some kind and they have patches on them. Okay, that's their cut. It stems back to a uh, World War II era. The soldiers coming home informing these families because they missed their units and their brothers, and that's where the motorcycle clubs came from originally. Well, they would take their uniforms, cut the sleeves off of them put military-style patches back to and ranks as the president, you know, sergeant-at-arms, things like that within the club. And, uh, you know, that, that's where this come from. Right. And I took my oldest set of coveralls that I wore on the flight line to, to, to fix the aircraft, and my wife and my mother-in-law tore it apart, put all my patches on, all the squadrons I've been in, my deployment patches, um, you know, and other things that, that have meaning to me. And it's become my identity at the convention scene. Sure. But I ride this or wear this for writing. Uh, well, writing, not writing. Um, Although maybe someday you'll be doing that too. You'll have a writer's well, cut. <laughs> yeah. Well, now that, that's a plan. We're going to test that theory about uh, dictation and, and getting on the motorcycle, go for a cruise. Man, if I can just go cruising and put down words. Oh, baby, it's on. <laughs> so... At the beginning of this interview, we talked about how when you corrected me on how we came to know each other, you said it was originally you were did the online writing workshop. Mm-hmm. How did you discover about that and a little bit about what it, how it impacted you as a, as a writer? I discovered that one because I was already in Dave Farland's Apex class. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, he had passed that around and all. It was eye-opening. I mean, a lot of it at that point was refresher, but at the same time, it made me start rethinking what I'm doing, how I'm doing it. You know, how can I improve 
now that I'm looking at it with a, a keener eye. Because you know, when you just start something, you don't see everything. It's a force for the trees problem. Ben has done the same thing that I have. We've gone back to an old story and went and edited it, but it didn't fix it because it was still that old style writing because it's still up here in your head as it was, and it all still looks good. But you get somebody else with fresh eyes on it, now they're going to bleed all over it and tell you what was wrong. Right. So, you know, that that's one thing that's like, oh, I need to go back and look at this in a different way. You know, you, you got to look at it with a fresh side of eyes, but that's why we set things down for days, weeks, months, and then come back to them and go back through it like we had just started. Yeah. And just for those that don't know, the online writing workshop, we've got about a dozen videos of, we've got Dave Farland, we've got Tim Powers, and we've got Orson Scott Card dissecting each one, taking on different pieces of writing a story. But the way we did it is they're, they're looking at you straight on. So they're talking to you, which we intentionally recorded that way. And then we have about 10 essays from Ellen Hubbard on the craft of writing. And it walks you through how to write a short story. So there's, there's a practical aspect of the course, too, where you watch or read something, then you do it. Mm -hmm. So that by the time you're done with the course, you've written a short story. Yeah. If, you, if you decide to take it all the way of what the course has. Any part of that for either of you that that was the most significant or the most helpful? Really, the essays. To me, that, that was the, the most standout of how to go about doing the business of writing. You know, the research. Absolutely, get out there and research what you're trying to write because if you don't know it, it's going to come across as you don't know it. And I, I always go back to the one with the Coast Guard Cutter. Right. He search wrote, for research. Search for research. He he wrote the story. He submitted it, submitted it, submitted it. Nobody wanted it. Then he went and talked to the, the, the captain on the Coast Guard cutter and learned about the ship, about the people, how they go about what they do. He revamped the story and then sold it immediately. And it was one of his better adventure stories. Yeah, I love that story. Um, but when, when I was writing uh, Widowmaker's, I was at the point, I, I'm, I'm an aircraft mechanic. I love my planes. And I got to go down to the uh, Warner Robins Air Force Museum and turn wrenches on a B-17. And it helped, I, I, was it, I was installing brake lines and some other stuff, but they let me climb all over that thing. Then they let me climb all over an A-26 and a B-25 and get inside, touch the planes, smell them. The, the smell of the fuel and the hydraulic fluid, it puts you in that sense. And the cold steel it's there's no insulation it's just bare metal and it's different you know so you can get in there and picture how cramped it is how did these people feel sitting in here those cockpits an a26 cockpit it's cramped for me and i'm not that big of a guy right so you know they would have had been like this and i actually incorporated the that bit of research into um the short story that i put in the legends anthology fire and ice uh, just the way the layout was, was where the the crew set, you know, had the gunner in the back run the turrets and all that information, you know, it made it more real for the aircraft gearheads. They got that little bit of fan service for what the subject was. Well, what about yourself? Anything? For me, what what's impacted me the most about L. Ron Hubbard is the same as what's impacted me about Ray Bradbury and Dean Wesley Smith is just and and Mercedes Lackey just how prolific they are. They will they will sit down. They would get a story done, 
I mean, I don't quite know fully Mercedes, uh, you know, exactly what her process is, but she writes a ton. So I assume it's yeah. a similar thing. They write, they know the story they want to tell. They write clean copy because they're both, A, they're natural storytellers, and B, they are so in tune with the craft that they know exactly how to tell that story clean that first time. And I'm I'm inspired by that because, you know, I tend to outline, I, I brainstorm, I outline, I draft, I, I then revise and revise and revise. And I'm trying to get away from that because right. it ultimately, I mean, as Dean would mention, you know, the revision process is you're going backwards. I want to keep going forward. He's got this this rock, this unique rock, and you revise it and it gets smoother. It's like putting it through a rock polisher and it gets smoother and smoother and all of a sudden it looks like every other polished rock when you're done. Yes, yes. And I and that's I, his I've, story. <laughs> oh yeah, and and I've experienced that to some extent where I've accidentally edited something to the point where I've sucked my own voice out of it. Right. And and it's not even it's not even my story anymore. Like it the the trappings are there, the bones are there, but anyone else could have written what I just wrote. It, 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 and, and what makes stories unique is, like, the three of us could be given the same prompt. Mm-hmm. And, and I, Orson Scott Card has done this in a lot of his workshops. We could be given the same exact prompt, the same exact opening sentence, or even the same paragraph, and, okay, write the rest of the story. I guarantee you our stories would be completely different. Right. And, and, and it's all just because of our own individual styles and voices. And if you revise too much, that gets washed out. And um, that that's the area that I need to focus more on. And these these you know writers that I just named Hubbard and Bradbury and and Smith and uh, and not just because he shares my last name <laughs> and, and Lackey is is that they know how to do that. And that's where I want to be. I want to be able to to put out that clean copy in the beginning. And um, it, it's a process. It is a the neat thing about writing what I've learned here, especially this weekend at Superstar, is getting to meet some of the big names, the names I've either, I've either read or if I haven't read them, I know them because they're household names, is we're all, we're all on the same journey. And, and I don't want to, and I hope this doesn't come across as, as potentially belittling because I don't want to say that, but I don't know that they're in the writing field. I don't know that there are ever any real true masters. We're all journeymen, apprentices and journeymen, continuing forward, continuing to learn more, continuing to improve our craft. Dean, yesterday, in the panels that he was on, he was trying to learn from the panelists on uh, the information in, in the uh, the IP, or, or yeah, it was the IP cl- uh, panel. He was like, wait, IP? hold on, hold on. I'm, or, no, not IP, what was it? Um, AI? No. No, no, he doesn't it, like it was the It was the legal one, uh, the, the estate planning stuff. Oh, estate planning, yes. So we were in there, and and he's up there. He's taking notes, like, what would you say that was? And, and you know, he, he even says, he's still on that journey. He's constantly trying to learn. He said, uh, uh, Catherine went back to school for a couple of semesters just to learn and to keep relevant. And you know, we're always on that growth path. If you stop learning, you're dead. Well, that's because I had breakfast with him yesterday, and he was saying he wanted to learn about estates planning specifically because he wants his stuff to to continue on. You know, he's very interested how, I mean, Mr. Hubbard's set up. He's got he had an amazing estate planning that he worked out. You yeah. know, um, but he wants to make sure that people will still be able to enjoy his works, and it doesn't just like so many of the other authors from the golden age. You can't find them anymore, yeah. and so, so he doesn't have that. Well, Hubbard's estate is paying for writers of future. That's right. It's it's setting something up to help the baby authors become something, learn and grow, you know? Yeah. 
several of our authors who won, they were winners themselves, have become judges, you know, and their, their whole thing is continuing to, to pay forward and to make sure that, you know, science fiction was the genre that he dedicated his, mm -hmm. you know, the, the contest to science fiction and fantasy because he had the perspective also that science fiction is the herald of possibility. Mm -hmm. And he wanted to have that future there, a potential bright future. When he had, to, he had after World War II, Korea was beginning to escalate, and he and several other authors met at Heinlein's home and conceived a space race to distract people from the arms race, which had, was rapidly escalating at that time, and to put everybody's attention on an enemy out there and this unknown enemy out there called space that we could devote our intentions to instead of trying to like nuke each other out. Let's just tackle this right. thing called this unknown of, of space. And that's what started. You know, they had, because they were both well-known science fiction writers, but they also were military, they had the ear of Washington, and they were like, okay, let's do something here. And so he wrote books, um, The End Is Not Yet, is one of his books that we'll be republishing in the not-too-distant future. And he had there a specific intention, which was following what happened on, on the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, we don't want that to happen. So he gave an alternate future in the end is not yet saying, okay, it's not over. We don't have to have it be that. We can go this other direction. And he wrote that book and it was, it was given to a few certain people in Washington. He said, that was, I wrote the book for, he wrote it for specific people. He said, it served its purpose, what I wanted it to do. It wasn't, it was a science fiction book that went out, you know, being published, but the audience was not the general public. The audience was specifically some people in Washington that could make a decision to not go in the direction of right. increased war, but instead let's tack, tackle space. Yeah. Now, now can, can I bounce off a little something you said there? Yeah. And it's just beautiful. And it goes back to, to my solo speech that I had yesterday, uh, the, the Power of You. You said he just they, they, they went over and hung out at Highline's place. Yeah. How freaking cool is that? <laughs> But at the same time, they had pre or they had other authors come up after them, right? Who formed their groups, and their others formed. You know, we're all peers. Just some have more mileage than the others, and a lot of the baby authors they get overwhelmed. And we we had this going on here at Superstars. It's a constant. We've pulled I don't know how many people out of corners. Like, hey, you good? You need to talk. And they're just like over the top overwhelmed because, oh my God, there's Kevin J. Anderson. Oh my God, there's Jonathan Mayberry. It's like, I've been guilty of that. <laughs> and, and I almost lost a good friend because I put my friend on, on a pedestal and I'll never do that again. They're people. Yeah. And those groups, they're getting older. Dean and Kevin and all of them, they're, they're on the older end. Our generation are what's going to replace them. Mm-hmm. And then we're going to have trainees below us that we have to help come up and, and learn how to do this to replace us. And it, it goes in cycles. But we're all on the same journey, like Ben said. It's just we have different mileage is all it is. Yeah. And it's interesting. Rise of the Future, we're now in the 40th year in the contest. Mm -hmm. The number of people have made it through, you know, um, Brandon Sanderson was honorable mention. He disqualified himself when he started publishing, mm -hmm. you know, but that was when I talked to him before he became a judge, he said, yeah, I was, 
I was seriously considering giving up because I'd written six novels and hadn't done anything. And when I got my honorable mention, it was like, okay, good. Stick with it. You've got something here. Um, you think you might have just a little something there? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just, and, just, just, just a little bit. Just a little bit. Yeah, when I met um, at, a, at an ALA, American Library Association convention, uh, some years ago, I, I met and spoke with um, Joe Hill, who's Stephen King's son. And he said, yeah, I, was an, I won an honorable mention as well you know, when I first started writing way back when. And um, it's amazing the number of people that took advantage of, you know, Rise of the Future at, at, at the outset, you know, as, as a viable competition. Because there's one thing that makes it unique. You talked about how Rise of the Future is, is unique as a valuable goal to go for because yeah. it is truly blind judge. All the judges ever see is a number and the story or the art. They don't see, they have no idea who or what or anything else about and it. You. It's rare that you see that these days. A lot of them have gone to being popularity contests, yeah. which in my opinion really has no value. But if it's on the merit of the work where there are no names involved, you just blindly read the story and it's either a good story or it's a bad story. Yeah. And I'm, I'm following that when I'm getting the submissions in for our anthologies at Three Ravens, remove the name, whoever the head editor is, they're seeing a story, but no name. Yeah. That way we can blindly judge it. There's no bias. And it, it, it's a better product in the end. Yeah, absolutely. Now I just look at the, the clock here. We're like, which I knew would happen. You know, we've had so much fun in this. We've burned through our hour here. So before we end off here, I'd like you to, how can somebody discover your writing? What, what do you recommend as a primer for Hillbilly or for William Joseph Roberts? Well, even though it needs edited because it was my very first piece, um, Flux Runners. It is chaotic space opera. It's Firefly, um, the little guy just trying to get away from the company, you know, and the company store wants to keep control of him. You know, I grew up in Southern West Virginia, so the coal mine reference is applicable. Um, I grew up in that where they all, nobody wanted to be controlled anymore. That's why they brought the unions in and stuff. So that's kind of what influenced a lot of Flux Runners was this cast of characters just trying to get by like out of Firefly. And then they have this opportunity. You know, they end up in this other planet and have the opportunity to break free and do their own thing and actually prosper and grow. Right. So they do. But Earth doesn't like that. They want their control back. So that it starts with uh, starts bringing up conflict good so how do they find that book uh well you can find it on williamjosephroberts.com or over at threeravenspublishing.com and i'm on uh dear god i don't know how many social media pages at this point and amazon good that's good to know and what about yourself well, uh, my website is benjamintylersmith.com. Uh, I currently have two novels that are out in um, the Fallen World universe. It's a shared post-apocalyptic universe put out through Chris Kennedy Publishing that Christopher Woods founded. That's his baby. Uh, the two books are Blue Crucible and Blue Salvation. And basic rundown, in that world, it's near future. Corporations have taken over the whole world and have proceeded to then nuke the hell out of it. And my books take place, most of the books in that universe take place 20 or 30 years after the fall. Mine take place at the beginning of the fall when a, it's a, they all takes place in a Midwest city where um, mounted police officers from all over the world were gathered for a convention, just happened to be on the day the nukes drop. Their city is spared from most of the damage, which is good because the people there can survive, but now what's left of the two corporations 
want to take over that place for its infrastructure. And the only people standing between them and destruction are these mounted police. And it's a it's an adventure story. It has, you know, drama and humor. It has some really heartbreaking moments, especially in the sequel, that mm-hmm. I'm still getting feedback on from people that say tore them apart, but was ultimately therapeutic, which is good because uh, I broke down writing a couple of scenes. <laughs> yeah. I'm unashamed to admit. Huh. Um, and then my uh, my Necrolopolis tales can be found also on the website through the, the various anthologies they've been published in. Uh, we even have a collection through Three Ravens of my earliest works in that universe. And if you join my mailing list, you will get one of those short stories for free. And in a few months, you'll be getting a novella in that world for free as well. And then I can finally get back to working on the novel. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you both very much for participating in this, uh, this podcast. And thank you for listening. Subscribe to the Writers of the Future podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We've also been syndicated on the United Public Radio Network where you can find these podcasts as well. Writers of the Future can be purchased wherever books are sold in the U.S., Canada, the U.K., Australia, and South Africa and available everywhere via Amazon.com. We are especially appreciative of our sponsor, Carnation, for supporting this podcast. Carnation has been making delicious milk products for over a century and is still going strong. Writers and Illustrators of the Future are contests created by Elwin Hubbard to provide a means for the aspiring writer and artist to be seen and acknowledged. It is free to enter and open to amateur short story writers and artists of science fiction or fantasy. Again, thank you very much, Hillbilly and Ben. Thanks for having thank us. Thank you.